Good afternoon, everybody. Usually I'm here, we're here in the evenings, but we're doing an afternoon, of course, on this Sunday. Welcome to Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is Ariane Dominique. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We're so happy to have you guys come out here. Um, it's going to be a pretty fun afternoon. So here's some quick uh, things to keep in mind before we start with uh, the presentation and before I continue along with the introductions. Uh, we have several exciting events coming up uh, in August, uh, this upcoming month. Stay tuned on our website and check out our local media and our uh, calendar on our website to see future events that are uh, coming up, and they'll just be they'll be just as awesome. Usually in the evenings as well. Um, lots of good stuff happening as well, and they're always free and open to the public. So make sure to keep that in mind. Moving on, I have the pleasure of introducing our speakers here this evening. Hazel Gaynor is the New York Times U is the New York Times USA Today and Irish Times best-selling author of six historical novels, including The Girl Who Came Home and most recently The Lighthouse Keeper, The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter. She was a recipient of the 2015 Romantic Novelist Association Historical Novel of the Year Award, shortlisted for the 2017 Irish Books Book Award, and recipient of the 2018 Women's Fiction Writers Association Star Award. She lives in County Kildare, yep. uh, Ireland, with her husband and children. There we go. Uh, we also have Heather Webb, is the international best-selling and award-winning author of six historical novels set in France, including Becoming Josephine, Rodin's Lover, Last Christmas in Paris, and the upcoming Ribbons of Scarlet, which, which will be pub published in October 2019. She was a recipient of the 2018 Women's Fiction Writers Association Star Award. She lives in New England with her, ch with her children and husband. So Hazel and Heather's third co-written novel, Advice for Ladies Adventures, a coming-of-age tale inspired by Nellie Bly's famous around-the-world race, will be published in 2021. So definitely keep that in mind. Uh, MJ Rose uh, said about this book, it, she called it an enchanting novel. Gaynor and Webb weave a wonderful tale of love and loss, graced with the sense of, per the sense of perfumes, Magnificent vistas and characters you will not soon forget. A delight for Francophiles, perfumists, film buffs, and everyone who loves a good cry and a happy ending. <laughs> Channel Cleeton said, Meet Me in Monaco is a sweeping novel that will carry you away on a grand adventure. Gaynor and Webb bring the senses alive as the reader is transported back in time and becomes a guest at the, at the wedding, an enchanting read. So without any further ado, Harrisburg, may you join me in welcoming our speakers tonight. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, first of all, I have to remark on this amazing store. I've been to a lot of bookstores, and I love indie stores, and Hazel loves indie stores, but we are blown away by the scope of this place and that gorgeous rare book room downstairs. It's incredible, so we're really happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much to everybody for coming out to, to talk to us. So we just want to spend a little bit of time telling you about Meet Me in Monaco. Um, about some fascinating research that took Heather and I to the south of France. Clearly, that was a very difficult trip for us to take, um, <laughs> going to the Côte d'Azur um, and obviously to Monaco to research the book and follow in the footsteps of both Grace Kelly, Princess of Monaco, and of our fictional characters in the novel, um, which we'll talk to you a little bit about this afternoon. Um, and we'll each do a short reading from the book as well, because we wanted to give you a little flavor of um, scene setting and invite you into the world, which we then hope you will continue when you take the book away today. And of course, we'll be signing afterwards. So um, Heather's going to maybe just introduce the book and tell you a little bit about how we came to write it. And we'll take it from there. Well, for those of you who have seen our first novel and those of you who haven't, uh, Last Christmas in Paris is actually set during World War I. And we knew that we wanted to, we had a great time writing that book, but we knew we wanted to do something completely different. And the most opposite thing you could think of from World War I is 1950s glamour on the Riviera. <laughs> and so uh, we, we definitely wanted a lovely summer book. And as soon as we started thinking about that location, you know, um, scarves and hats and the big sunglasses and the striped umbrellas, uh, Grace Kelly came to mind. And so, we had a very excited, squealing conversation about Grace Kelly, and then we started diving into the research from there. Yeah, and I, I suppose, you know, people have asked us a lot 
whilst we've been talking about the book, which only released on Tuesday. So this is really an exciting time for us to, having spent 18 months, nearly two years with the book in our heads and on the page, and now we get to talk about it and, and invite readers in. And we've had some amazing reader feedback. And actually what's been really interesting is how some people knew a little bit about Grace Kelly um, or have been lifelong fans of her. So we've had really different responses. Mm -hmm. But what's been really fabulous for us as authors is that people who even didn't know Grace Kelly that well, when they finished reading the book, they're immediately running to look up her filmography, to look at videos of her wedding on YouTube. Um, it's so fabulous to be writing at this particular time in our lives because we have access to such incredible footage of these historic events. So we were able, as part of our research, to look at old um, Pathé newsreel footage of the wedding in Monaco. Um, and Grace Kelly was this young 26-year-old woman who had recently won an Oscar um, and was known for her roles with Hitchcock in the likes of Rear Window in these really celebrated Hollywood movies. Um, and she was really at the pinnacle of her career um, in May of 1955 when she was invited to Cannes Film Festival. And it was the first time, actually, that she'd attended. Um, and she was representing her studio, MGM. Um, and off she went to Cannes to promote her movie. Um, and not knowing that, that that trip was going to change the course of her life. Because while she was in Cannes, at the film festival, she was invited to travel to the small principality of Monaco uh, to meet the prince. And Grace, a young 26-year-old woman, you might have thought was fascinated to do this, but actually it was quite in, inopportune, really. She was a very busy young woman. She had places to go, people to meet. <laughs> um, and who is this prince? Who is this prince of Monaco, anyway? So. Anyway, she, she went to meet him, um, and that, as we now know, changed the course of both of their lives. And it was really that sense of those chance encounters um, and how just an, an impromptu meeting with somebody can change the course of our lives. So that's very much what inspired our version of her life story in Meet Me in Monaco. And not only the chance encounter between Grace Kelly and this prince who was in need of a wife, um, but also between two fictional characters who we've brought into Grace's world. Um, and they also have a chance encounter, not just with Grace Kelly, who's about to become a princess, unbeknown to them all at the time, but also a chance encounter with each other. Um, and we were fascinated to explore how those moments can change a life. And those two fictional characters, one is a British press photographer called James, who's a charming young man, um, but he's basically hounding the celebrities at Cannes Film Festival, and he needs to take a photograph of Grace Kelly in order to keep his job when he goes back to London. And the other fictional character is our beautiful perfumer, Sophie, a very passionate young French woman who is struggling to keep her father's perfume business um, afloat. And it's this chance encounter with Grace Kelly that changes the course of Sophie's story. Um, and that might be a good time to introduce <laughs> Heather's reading of Sophie. Really? Uh, okay. Yeah, I think just to maybe give you a, a taste of Sophie and who she is um, when we meet her, we first meet her in the book. All right, and this is right from chapter one. Can, May, 1955. Each scent holds a mystery its own story. That was the first lesson Papa taught me. To be a perfumer is to be a detective, Sophie, he'd say, bent in deep concentration over the mixing tube with a dropper of perfume oil. He would mix the solvent and sniff, mix and sniff until he was satisfied. Only then would he soak a mouillette, a narrow strip of paper, and hand it to me. What do you see, he'd ask, because that was the real question, where the scent took me. I would inhale and be whisked away in an instant. A touch of jasmine hinted at carefree days in the sun. Wood smoke conjured a cool autumn night in rich cassoulet for supper. Dry earth evoked our home and grass, a stone farmhouse surrounded by sunflower and lavender fields, 
window standing open to wash the rooms with fresh air. I could almost taste the dust from the parched earth on my tongue as I fell into a memory of paper with smudged ink, the telegram announcing my father's death. Papa's nature wasn't suited for war. Part scientist, part artist, he was a gentleman who loved nothing more than the fragrant fields of Provence and the bounty they provided for his perfumes. The day he left us to join the fight against the Nazis, I was a young girl just blossoming into womanhood and the lavender was in full bloom, painting the hillsides in shades of purple and blue. It was the last time I saw him, a silhouette against the sun-soaked horizon. That was the day Maman took over the family business and the day I first understood that life did not always work out the way you wanted it to. The death notification arrived the following spring along with Papa's papers and personal effects. Dirt, blood, fear, the scent of a life so cruelly lost. Like all scents, it imprinted itself on my memory and that was where I kept him now, a memory, an unanswered question of what might have been. I sighed as I corked a small glass bottle and returned it to its place on the tray in my office. Nearly closing time, I stood and stretched, rolled my head from side to side to release a crick in my aching neck. I spent most of my time working on new scent combinations or overseeing the three perfumers who assisted me in my workshop in grass. They developed commercial scents to be sold to detergent companies while I created fine perfumes. That was my specialty, luxury fragrances. And that's where we take off this connection between Sophie, a struggling artisan perfumer, who wants to deal in fine fragrances, and here we have an actress about to become a princess who needs a perfume for her wedding, and that's based in fact. So Grace Kelly, when the wedding was announced, was courted and fated by lots of the um, makeup houses, couture houses from France, who obviously wanted to dress her, um, and perfumers, the likes of Lancôme, companies like that, who wanted their products to be associated with this enormous global star, and we see that happening still today. So Sophie, being a perfumer, didn't just happen by chance. We chose her profession from research that we discovered when reading about how um, these people were introduced to Grace Kelly, these women representing their, their perfume houses, and how she chose a, a bespoke fragrance for her wedding. Um, so that was very much, it's fiction, the way we write it, but it was very much inspired by fact. Um, so of course, Heather and I, to write that properly, <coughs> had to understand how a perfumer's head works um, and how perfume is made. And this was part of our trip to, um, to Grasse in Provence, where we learned how to make perfume, and Heather will tell you all about that. <laughs> well... I used to teach high school French for a decade before I became a mother and a writer. So going to France was no hardship for me. And in fact, when we talked about setting the book there, I said to Hazel, ooh, this is a great opportunity for a research trip. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, especially the south of France is so lovely. But we really wanted to capture that essence on the page, and we felt like we could do that best by going there and participating. So um, we went to Molinard, which is a, um, the oldest uh, perfumery in southern France, still in operation today from the 19th century, mid-19th century. Um, and we toured their factory in Grasse, right downtown. Um, and we took lots and lots of notes, tons and tons of photos. Um, but they also had this really cool uh, perfume-making class. And, you know, we had to get on that. So, um, so we, um, we sat next to each other with this giant carousel of um, what are called head notes or the top notes, the heart notes, and the base notes. Um, and they're divided by what lingers on the skin, the, the amount of time. So the top notes are the first to go, usually within 20 minutes. Um, the heart notes uh, within an hour, and then the base notes can linger uh, up to four hours, depending on, and if it's on your clothes, longer, of course. Um, so we went through dozens and dozens of scents from each level. Uh, our head spinning by the end, you know, where you just kind of want to cover your nose and smell nothing. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun to see what she would choose and what I would choose. One of the things they said to us was, don't think too much about it. If you, you know, just do a quick sniff, and if you like it, put it in the I like it pile and keep them in order. 
Um, and so we did that. And, uh, and then after that, we literally had, were given bottles and had to put a certain amount of milliliters of that scent into the bottle to make the perfume. Um, and so it was really, really great fun. Um, we did discover, however, that it's not that simple. Certainly, we got the easy end. They showed us as a tourist how to do this kind of thing, but uh, a real perfume can have hundreds of ingredients, and most of them do today because of just the complex chemistry involved with recreating scent. And there's a lot of um, uh, synthetics used, so it, obviously you're gonna have more chemicals that way. And, and actually, that's something that Sophie is uh, very, very upset about and, and is, is trying very hard to keep her artisanal um, pastime very much alive. And they are again today still, and they're having to beat out synthetics, and it's, it's a difficult thing. But um, our perfumes later on, I have discovered as I got home that it did not keep very well because <laughs> it didn't have all the fixatives and all the whatever. And so it's sitting on my 12-year-old's dresser. Gave it to my daughter, uh, and she loves it. She's happy with it. But uh, but it was it was great fun, and we learned a lot about different kinds of scents and their combination together. Something like mint is very very strong, or like violet is very strong. So you uh, you have to be careful with you know uh, the percentages of, of adding it in there. Um, and yeah, go ahead. It, it was just fascinating. You know, we I don't think we appreciated before we went to that. Um, that class just how complex and there were literally there was probably 50 different scents that could form the top note the first the first thing that you smell when you spritz a, a cologne or a perfume and there was 50 heart notes and 50 you know there was everything you could possibly imagine it was it was so fascinating and we we talk a lot about you know desk research so of course with Grace Kelly as I said at the beginning we we could look at her movies you know what better way to understand but she was playing a role in those movies so that's not the real Grace Kelly um, so we read an awful lot of books about her life both as an actress and then as um, a, you know in this incredibly diplomatic role as as a princess as a mother um, as somebody who helped to found lots of charity, she was very, very philanthropical as well in her work. Um, and you can gather a lot of that. And, and actually, our problem, if anything, was where to stop researching mm -hmm. and start writing. Because when you have somebody as well known as Grace Kelly, I mean, we could have written 15 books about her. We had to decide what to leave out as well as what to bring in to the, to the book. Um, and a lot of that was done at the desk. Um, and reading various accounts of her life, um, and some of them were quite scandalous. You know, people seemed to want to believe that this liaison between Grace and, and Renier was not the best idea, and that it had somehow been a forced arranged marriage, and she was desperately unhappy. And then other accounts, for example, from some of her bridesmaids who traveled with her on the Constitution that took Grace from New York to Monaco, said, you know, absolutely not. The, the, the newspapers at the time were just desperately trying to find some scandal and gossip because that's a good story, you know, as it is now. But really there was nothing other than they fell in love after that first meeting in Cannes. And they exchanged letters and wrote to each other in the months following and very quickly then he proposed. And it was a whirlwind romance, um, incredibly romantic, often talked about as a fairy tale. Um, you know, so there was a lot of desk research we could do, but to go to the place where our fictional character is set and where Grace was married to step into St. Nicholas Cathedral was incredibly helpful to us as novelists as well. Um, and that might be a good place for me to read the next section of the book. You um, can't have it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've learned it off by heart, yeah. <laughs> because a lot of people, um, when we're talking about the book, are fascinated by, well, how, how did Grace and the Prince meet? And, and why did they meet? And, and what was that meeting like? So, of course, we had to write that scene into the book because that was going to be juicy stuff. So this is a short piece about our photographer, James, who, remember, is in Cannes and Monaco to try and get a picture of this celebrity who's going to help save his job. And this is James talking to us. At the palace, an aide explained rather awkwardly that His Serene Highness was a little delayed. I have to remember to put my reading glasses on. 
because I'm still in denial that I need them. <laughs> so now I can see. He offered to escort our party on a tour of the palace while we waited. Miss Kelly didn't seem too impressed and kept glancing at her wristwatch, but she managed a polite smile as she was introduced to the group of photographers and reporters. She shook all our hands one after the other. James Henderson, British Press, I said when she reached me. Jim to my friends. She smiled warmly, said, hello, James, and moved quickly on to the chap beside me who was sweating profusely. He wiped his hand on his lapel before offering it to her. I was glad on her behalf that she wore wrist-length white gloves. I'm told the prince won't be long, gentlemen, she said brightly when she'd been introduced to us all. And I suppose a prince is entitled to make an entrance. Perhaps we could use the time to take some photographs inside. The consummate professional, she took control with ease and charm. I'd expected her to be more aloof, hardened by the Hollywood machine, but there was nothing aloof about Miss Kelly. She was absolutely charming, playful almost, as bemused to find herself at a royal palace in Monaco as the rest of us. Her soft American accent and girl-next-door look were a far cry from the dazzling star we usually saw turned out in furs and diamonds. Her garish floral dress reminded me of the wallpaper in my mother's living room, but it was no doubt the height of Paris fashion. I followed the other reporters and photographers into the grand palatial rooms. Walsh had urged me not to draw attention to myself. Look a little bored, if anything, he'd suggested. You're good at that. I did my best, but it really wasn't easy in such ostentatious rooms and in the presence of such a striking woman. If she was reluctant to be there, Miss Kelly didn't let it show for a minute. She posed when and where asked, her trademark smile illuminating every room we visited, making our job easy. We photographed her looking at marble busts and armory and portraits of the Grimaldi family. In each setting, she turned on the charm for the cameras. I was impressed and more than a little amused with her ability to look absolutely fascinated by so many inanimate objects. Maybe she was the perfect woman to stroke the prince's ego after all. I'd heard he could be difficult to engage in conversation at best and about as interesting as a marble statue at worst. After several posed photographs in the library, I took a lovely shot of Miss Kelly walking along a long balcony, shafts of sunlight bursting between the ornate colonnades. She stopped for a moment, placing her hands on the stone balustrade as she gazed out over the courtyard below. She looked extraordinarily at home, as if she visited palaces all the time. I had to hand it to her. She was a fine actress indeed. And that's the meeting at the palace between James and <laughs> Grace. And it was great fun for us um, to bring Grace in, to in and out of the scenes in the story. You know, this Meet Me in Monaco isn't a biographical account of Grace Kelly's life. We, we very much set out not to write that. Um, but it was great fun for us to decide which parts of her life we were going to bring onto the page. Um, and to imagine, you know, really... Writing historical fiction is often about filling in the silences or um, allowing your imagination to fill those gaps where, yes, we have lots of photographs of somebody like Grace Kelly, but we don't know what she was thinking. We don't know what she was feeling. But as somebody who has been a 26-year-old woman in love, I can imagine what that would feel like. Um, so it was great fun for us to bring her in and out of Sophie and James's lives and how they interact with her, and how they then interact with each other. Um, and to show maybe another side to Grace, um, the very human, anxious young woman, excited young woman about to be married, but nervous, um, and maybe a little unsure. Um, and what, what might that feel like to somebody like her? We really liked that her coming in and out was a chance to bring our characters together. She acts a bit like a fairy godmother in a sense. Mm -hmm. She sort of sprinkles her magic on the page and then it becomes about the other characters. And mm -hmm. it, she seems like that in her films too. Like she brings some sort of magic forward. And so we wanted to kind of capture that essence on the page as well um, and, uh, and show the parallel between her relationship with Rainier as well as um, Sophie and James's relationship towards the end. Mm. So we became very emotionally 
connected to her through through writing this book. I mean, I think when you write any novel about a real person, um, whether they're extremely well-known like Grace Kelly or, or somebody who's less well-known from history, but you spend so much time with them, you, you, they form a part of your life. Um, and I, whenever I'm writing about somebody, I, I have lots of visual imagery of them around my desk. So there's been pictures of Grace Kelly around me for the last two years almost, which isn't a bad, isn't a bad problem to have. Um, and you do feel very emotionally attached. And I, I actually sat just before I, I left Ireland on Tuesday to travel over. So we're, we're, we're traveling around um, doing events like this in gorgeous bookshops like this. Um, and I was at my desk just looking at some footage of her before she left um, America to travel to Monaco. And I got really upset, well, not upset's the wrong word, but very emotional watching these um, snippets of her life. And I think, I hope that by the time a reader has spent time with our characters, whether real or imagined, um, that you feel you've engaged and invested in their lives as well. There's nothing better than a reader saying, I just spent an hour with Google or in the library or re-watching these films or what have you um, because I was so inspired by the book to go find out more. Mm. That's historical novelists love to hear that because we can only give you a taste and hopefully a thirst for more knowledge. And so we've been hearing that quite a lot and it's been a lot of fun to, to you know, yeah. people re-watching High Society and To Catch a Thief and, um, and so on. So rediscovering yeah. her. Some of there was a lovely yeah. review we read recently and, um, it said, you know, this book brings Grace Kelly back to life. And, uh, you know, I think as, as authors who have just stepped into her world and we've, you know, we've imagined things. We don't know for 100% what she thought and felt in certain situations. We do our best with how much research we can gather and make informed choices. Um, and that's just an incredible compliment that, uh, you know, that we may bring people back to find her, to, to rediscover her, um, which is a real, really lovely outcome. We've actually had a lot of people too bring up that uh, she wasn't the first, or she was the first American princess. We had another one very recently in the news, obviously, with Meghan Markle, and there are a lot of similarities. You have these two women who are both actresses at the height of their career uh, that live halfway across the world from their prince, and they they give up their country, their family, their careers, and and um, have because they've fallen in love and and get married, uh, and. Is that wrong? Is is that something that is um, not a noble cause, so to speak? And Hazel and I, have, we've talked a lot about this, and we just feel, first of all, what's more noble than raising children? Um, but beyond that, it's not that they gave up a career; it's that they changed their career. Mm -hmm. These women started have started incredible charities, uh, and and are very very active in in lives of uh, of the needy, whether it be in their own countries or elsewhere. Um, Grace Kelly was a huge proponent of the American Cross, Red Cross, um, and then she also started the Grace Kelly Foundation, which you you guys aren't that far from Philadelphia. I don't know if you've heard of it, but in in essence, it supports um, actors and other artists. Um, they help pay off their college loans. And in fact, uh, Leslie Odom Jr. from Hamilton had his loans paid off by the Grace Kelly Foundation, uh, his, his college loans. So um, a lot of worthy causes and uh, that they're involved with um, being on an international stage of that scope. It's just a very different kind of career. And I think that's often overlooked in the media, and it's a shame. Um, and uh, it's something that we, we have put actually in the back of the book. There's what's called the PS section. We go into a little bit more of the research and some of the facts and what happened next after the wedding, um, if you're interested in looking up a few things there. Um, and we really wanted to include that piece because it was important to us to, to show that we think that she was much more than just, oh, she fell in love and got married and, and had children. Um, Absolutely, and I think, you know, the, the legacy that somebody like Princess Grace has left um, is re it's it's really important, you know, and we, we wanted to talk about that. And I think that you know the media and attitudes to women were very very different, obviously in the 1950s. Um, and somebody in her position in Hollywood probably had a very different experience to somebody in Hollywood today. Um, but she was a smart lady, and she obviously knew she could use her celebrity for good. Um, and she reminds me very much of Princess Diana of Wales. Just, not, not necessarily in looks, but just in how they took on that role 
um, and handled that intense media scrutiny. I mean, they're probably two of the most photographed women in the world. Um, and actually, Princess Diana was in attendance at the Prince, Princess, Princess Grace's funeral. I mean, that's an incredibly, um, you know, their, their lives have, have followed very curious arcs in very similar ways. Um, so I have absolute admiration for somebody who, she took a huge leap of faith if, if we look at it that way, she fell in love. We've all done crazy things. We've all fallen in love and made a crazy decision and gotten, I fell in love and moved to Ireland, you know, and everybody said I was crazy and that was only like an hour away. Um, <laughs> so she got on a huge, enormous um, ship and sailed from New York to Monaco to take on everything that was expected of a, a person in her position and she handled it so very well. Um, and I think it's really fantastic that we have the Princess Grace Foundation and that people are still being supported by somebody in her position. And of course, we still have um, the Grimaldi family in Monaco, and we still have royal weddings of Grace Kelly's granddaughter just recently. Um, and just a few days ago. Absolutely. Yeah. And beautiful nods to the legacy of her. You know, they'd wear the same necklace that Grace wore at a state ball one time. So this is living history. And I think as as historical novelists, I think sometimes we can think history is this very black and white, sepia-tinted, uh, untouchable thing. Um, and actually, when you start to talk about it, history does repeat itself. Sometimes that's not a good thing. Um, but I think it, it was only the 1950s. It's not long ago. Um, and I think these people are very relatable, um, even though times have changed an awful lot. Um, so it's been interesting to look at those parallels with the likes of Meghan Markle and, and as I say, how history repeats itself. And uh, you said something about legacy. I think that's a major theme in our book as well. It's um, We can look at the legacy Grace left behind, but we can also, um, our main character, Sophie, is intent on preserving her father's memory and in the process, and his business, and in the process realizes that she truly at heart was always a perfumer and, a, and an artist just like her father and that uh, she's not doing this for him as much as she's doing it for herself but she's willing to to go the long you know make the long haul and get scrappy to save her business and um, and I think sometimes that's what it takes to preserve legacy and pass things on to to whoever comes behind you whoever's next and I think that's a really beautiful sentiment um, so yeah it's been so I think at this point, we should do questions if anybody has any questions. and Yeah, yeah. we'll do uh, questions now, and I have the mic, so just raise your hand, and I'll come to you. We'll do a few, and then uh, we'll continue on to the book signing. So any questions? Awesome. Can you hear me? Mics are intimidating, aren't they? I'm always They are. I've, <laughs> I've never used one before. I'm tempted to burst into song, but I'll try not to. <laughs> I am not. I'm not tempted. Not at all. I find it fascinating that you two write together. So you aren't the I, only one. I want to know how that works. Well, the, the very quick backdrop is we have the same literary agent, and we had debut novels coming out around the same time, so she connected us, and we became fast friends. Um, and we decided to work on our first novel together because we had done an anthology with several other authors and just we hit it off so well and decided, who wouldn't it be fun just to try to write a co-novel? It was a, actually a very rapid thing. We kind of had this idea and then all, next thing you know, we're working on Google Docs. I don't know if you're all familiar with Google Docs, but it's basically a, a program where you can both be writing at the same time in different locations. Uh, and, and see what the other person is writing. Um, and so it quickly became a doc, and next thing you know, we're in love with these characters that we created. And so um, that's the basis, but in terms of the nuts and bolts, we usually, um, we each take a character. We do all the plotting together, so we'll get on the phone um, via like a, a program like Skype. 
um, and we hash out all the big stuff. Um, and then we've made a couple of documents just to keep track of the timeline and who these people are. Uh, and then we each take a character that we feel like we could write well, or you know, the first book, I took the boy, she took the girl. This one, she took the boy, I took the girl. So you know, just for fun to mix it up and make it different. Um, and our, our upcoming is, is two women, actually, perspectives. But so that allows us to, when we write the first draft, to take turns writing. Either, um, you know, she's ahead five hours in time, obviously. Um, and so sometimes she'll write first, and then I get up in the morning in the US five hours later, and then I'll work on the document, or we work every other day, that kind of thing. Um, and then for editing, we actually both go through page by page together. So we've actually both worked on every single scene, both characters, um, lots of comments in the margins. So the thing about Google Docs, too, is it emails you every time the person leaves a comment. So you're able to see, you know, I wake up at 7 a.m. or 6 a.m., whatever, and I have 37 emails in my inbox, and I know Hazel has been on the document, you know? So um, that's the basics of it. It's great fun. I mean, I, th I think the question most people want to ask really is, where, when do you disagree, and what happens when you, fall, when you have a big bust up and fall out? And we're really boring, because we don't. We just get along so well. Um, and it, it's in addition to our solo work, so we're, all the time we're still working on our own novels. Um, and actually, we've, we've realized that writing together is really complementary to writing on our own, rather than interruptive in any way. It's all about the creative process. And sometimes when you're working away on your own novel, and you know we're talking a process of 18 months to two years from research to finished book most of the time. That's a long time to be on your own with a project. It's really great to have the ability to sometimes just step away from that, but still be working and still be writing and bounce ideas off each other for our solo projects as well. Um, and yeah, it just works. It, it's somehow the, the time difference and being in different continents. Plus, we've each brought something different to the writing process. Heather's very much a, a plotter, so would naturally want to sort of map things out. I'm the opposite, what we call a pantser, so I kind of make it up as I go along. And sometimes we need to borrow a little bit of that style from each other. Yeah, um, we, we, It's really good. Yeah, I think that's a great, we borrow that style from mm -hmm. each other. I think we're extremely flexible, both of us. And so if even though I like to have more of a direction, I can also... If I, I know that I just have to write this scene to figure out what's going to happen, or, or we don't necessarily know what direction the next chunk is going to go in, mm -hmm. we just have to write through the scenes. And, and we're basically trying something on for size. And I've actually learned that quite a bit from Hazel. It's not something I'd done much of before. I really would spend a lot of time in advance. And now I, I really kind of do a mix of both. And I think maybe you do a mix, a mix of both. A little bit, yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, you know, all, look, all great partnerships. Um, it's all about the partnership, you know, whether it's Fred and Ginger or Bonnie and Clyde or Thelma and Louise. You know, we're a very modern phenomenon, really. I, I don't think authors could collaborate in this way in different continents without the likes of oh, yeah. Skype and Google Docs and Hangouts yeah. and emails. But, um, yeah, it's great fun, so long may it last. But that flexibility piece is huge, as is, I think, um, having the same work ethic. You know, if you're working with somebody who considers hard work working on the book twice a week and then the other person is like I have to write every day or, or every other day or something that you're going to clash there's going to be a problem there because one person's going to feel like they're they're never writing and the other one's going to feel you know the opposite so we have a very very similar work ethic too and I think that that helps we both run on about 100 miles an hour <laughs> we, as you can tell because we never yeah. shut up <laughs> but we also and I think it's really important we have very similar um sort of life situation. So we, we both have family, we both have children, we have to juggle all of that. So sometimes it might be my day to work on a project and, and one of the kids is off school sick and I just have to say to Heather, I'm really sorry, I can't work today, you know, and we get it, you know. So I think if one of us was in a really different life situation on a yacht sipping champagne all day, you know, we might not, <laughs> we might not get that. So we, you know, we get it. We, we understand each other's real lives as well as the the work life that, yeah. that we go. We should probably let you ask another question. Okay. <laughs> and there's one back there too, just so you know. <laughs> See, these two are fighting now. Yes. This is friends. Yes. We get it. Uh, because you're writing a historical novel, 
and obviously you have research to do. My question is, how much research do you do before you actually sit down and start putting that novel on paper, as it were? I think it depends on the book. Okay. I mean, yeah. I, I, I know I'm aware of um, the research that's done as you're going along. Yes. Mm -hmm. We front load. That's what I like to call it. Oh, so that, we'll that spend... We'll, we'll spend uh, probably six weeks, six to eight weeks. So when you're finishing another book, I go ahead and start reading at night. You know, my bathtub reading or my, my bedtime reading, I start researching and just highlighting, just absorbing information. I think you do the same. Yeah. Uh, and then um, after, at that point, so when we actually start the new one, we've spent a couple of months or more already doing a bunch of reading. So that way we have a base to work from. And then from there, like you said, we research in dribs and drabs based on things we need to look up. Um, I think it's that, that sort of desk-based research. And it's very sort of, it, it's what I call macro research. It's very high level. It's broad strokes. It's just getting a, a feel for your historical era. What were people doing? What were the political situations at the time, what were people wearing, you know, so a big picture, some of which will never find a, a place in the book at all, but it gives you the confidence to inhabit that space when you start writing. And then once you start, once you've got that broad foundation of knowledge, you, you kind of feel confident enough to dive in. And then as you're writing, then you'll realize, oh, I need to know what the name was for that particular style of shoe that I'm trying to describe, that people wore, and it can get that detailed. Um, you know, or how did people get from Cannes to Nice? I was just going to say, when the travel stuff, was, the it, it always trips festival. you up. Everything is it either does, faster yeah. or shorter than you think. Yeah. The train schedules from, you know, 1880s, um, London, I mean, you have to go track those down. Oh, I mean, yeah. not for this book, but, you know, there are things like that that we... Yeah. Yeah, I have to and spend time doing too. Detail. That's, you yeah. know, often you'd leave a little space in the manuscript and say, fill in detail of trains from Cannes to Nice, you know, because that, that pulls you out of the story. And yeah. so there's really different levels of research. But often, as I said before, the, the, the challenge is to get yourself back out of the Google rabbit hole and back into the words, because obviously we're we're history geeks here you know we could look at this forever and still find it fascinating and our poor husbands are bored oh, to tears on an evening and the research <laughs> bot like get, get this box of books i've ordered or gone and you know I've come home with 10 books and he's like are we starting a new book yeah I'm like, yes we are what are we learning look about now giant stack of biographies <laughs> and whatever else it is that i have so my kids are yeah. mini experts in everything from the titanic to the cottingly fairies we've been around lighthouses now they know all about grace kelly you know they're 11 and 13 year old boys they really shouldn't know this stuff <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's, it's great fun I am of the understanding that a special perfume was created uh, for Grace Kelly's mm -hmm. wedding. Yes. And I think by the prince. Was that the basis for making Sophia perfume? It was. It, wasn't, it was made by Creed. Florissimo was the name of the perfume. Um, I don't know that You're the prince very well researched. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was exactly where we got the idea for Sophie. Yeah. We haven't managed to smell a sample yet. But uh, we did, that was the inspiration. So in, in the book, um, the bespoke perfume is called Coeur de Princesse. And that was inspired by when we went to Grasse and we did the, um, the perfume class. And in another big historic perfumery there, um, Fragonard, we smelt these beautiful fragrances. And they're, they're beautifully packaged in gorgeous bottles as well. And it was one of them um, that inspired the name of our fictional version of, of Creed's Florissimo. But uh, yeah. And, and her wedding dress was really packaged in um, tissue paper when it came from New York to Monaco. The tissue paper was spritzed with the perfume so that she would smell, and it was all very floral. So I yeah. just think that's a fascinating piece of history. Your, your first novel was written in epistolary format. How yes. does that compare with writing as a you know, regular novel? It's really different. Yeah, so Last Christmas in Paris um, was an epistolary novel, so written in letters um, between our two characters, Tom, who's at the, on the Western Front in the Great War, and Evie, a childhood friend who's a woman, so she has to stay at home in London. Um, 
So we felt that that lent a, a great authenticity to writing a novel of the Great War between two people, because that is how people communicated during the war. Um, and I think it also, our first collaborative novel, it allowed us to write very organically. So we literally wrote letters to each other. So with the five-hour time difference, it actually worked really well. So I would work on my um, letter, and then Heather would open up the document. And it was as if our characters really were writing to each other. Um, so we would take something that person had said, and as you do when you reply, and we just wish we still wrote letters because we got very nostalgic for them, but you would reply to what they had told you. and said, oh, that's great, lovely to hear. And then you add some It's almost like a writing prompt in a way. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is, um, it was with Meet Me in Monaco as well, but not quite as directly, you know, to, mm -hmm. to reply to someone's letter is natural. And so, yeah, so that was, oh, yes. Yeah. We still we plotted. Still plotted. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and w in fact, we knew we wanted to do the five Christmases of the war from, you know, the, the first where, when it had begun in, in August to the December after it finished. Um, and that's how we divided the book into chunks. So we wanted to, to go through the whole scope of the war. Um, and I then think we were quite smart in doing that format, actually. We it, were, made yeah. it, it made it a little bit easier to write a novel by doing two distinct first-person point of views mm -hmm. with two different people writing that on the page. So I think we made a good decision to do that, and plus it suited the era, and it, it created this lovely sense of tension um, and that angst that people would experience during the war of waiting to hear. Especially so, when letters go missing or, you know, Tom goes missing at the front and such. So there are, yeah, it, there was a good... It's not quite so romantic now, is it, with WhatsApp and instant messaging, and we know, no. we know far too much about each other's lives yes, every minute of the day. <laughs> but so then with, with Meet Me in Monaco, um, it, it is, it's two characters' perspectives, so we divided the characters, and we still did a fair amount of plotting, but, and we knew, obviously, that the book was going to climax around the wedding, um, but we had actually written a lot of wedding scenes that we, because it was a, a span, a week of events, and we were trying desperately to show every one of those events with all the detail, and it just, it killed the story, so we had to figure out which parts to take out, and, um, and then we, um, there's a chunk that takes place in 1982, and so we had to figure out, do we want to put it through the novel? And we did, initially, and then decided, ah, that's not really working, so we had to rip it all out. And so we had a lot more back and forth with this one than we did with the other. Um, and it, so it was more challenging, in a way, I think, than, than the letter writing. Um, but we figured it out. We just, we got on the phone a lot and hashed it out. Or we'd try something and be like, no, that's not working. We both, we have a very similar instinct, I think, for storytelling, even though our styles are different, yet complementary. Um, I think our instincts are very similar, and so if something goes awry, then um, almost always, if I bring it up, she said, I just made a note to send you that today in an email or whatever it is. Um, there's a lot of that happening, so... And we've now been together since Tuesday, and we actually we've started finishing each other's sentences <laughs> this week. So this is quite worrying. It's brain trust. <laughs> so yeah. How are we doing for time? Have we got time? Yeah, we still yeah. got time for a few okay. more questions. Great. Anyway. Okay. I have two questions. One: Did each of you write from one character, one the female and one the male? Yes. And who did what? And the other question is: You mentioned that you're collaborating on a another book about two females. What time period is that? Mm -hmm. And does it involve any famous people? Okay, so first question, yes, we initially will take a character each. Um, so in Last Christmas in Paris, initially Heather wrote as Tom from the male point of view, and I wrote as Evie, the female point of view. And then in Meet Me in Monaco, we decided to switch it up. So I wrote James for the male point of view, and Heather wrote Sophie from the female point of view. And then obviously there are connecting bits within the um, narrative as well. So we have fictional news articles written by a journalist, Angeline West, um, which again were inspired by real newspaper articles from the time. So we would write them together. But with both novels, and we will definitely do it going forward, I think that starting point to take a character each really helps because you can, you can get into that character's head and you can um, write distinct voice 
because then it's, it's my voice writing as James and it's Heather's voice writing as Sophie. And we, we are very similar in many, many ways, but we, we do have distinct voices. But then through the redrafting and the editing process, we both touch every single word, every single sentence, every single paragraph of every single page. So it's a truly co-written novel. And we talk a lot about how important it is to leave the ego at the door because there's no room in a collaboration like this to be too precious about something and say in the finished item, oh, well, I wrote that scene and that's, you know, that's the best scene in the book. <laughs> or, you know, if Heather feels I've written something and it, it jars with her, it's inevitably going to jar with a reader. So it can be the most amazing line you've ever written, but it may need to go um, kill your darlings, as they say. And it's, it's the sort of editing process you do yourself when you're working on your own books, but when you have somebody else there whose opinion you have to take into account because you've, you've bought into doing this together. Um, so it's a truly co-written book and it, and by it the invariably end. makes yeah. it stronger, too, to have yeah. two people yeah. looking at something. Yeah. I mean, you really need more than your own view of something. Yeah. So that's Do you want to do part two of the question? So the lady adventurers? And yes. And was it inspired by somebody real from history? Yes. So our um, book coming out in 2021 is called Advice for Lady Adventurers. And it is uh, two sisters who are feuding, sort of in the vein of Thelma and Louise, um, who are about to inherit their grandmother's estate in, in the Hamptons. But they can't get the estate unless they go on this journey together, uh, essentially to work it out, right? To, to work out their family squabbles. But they can't get their inheritance until they've completed this journey that was first taken by Nellie Bly, famous journalist who traveled around the world in 72 days in uh, 1889. So, and there's a reason for that. The grandmother is linked to Nellie Bly in a secret way that comes out later. But what happens is they go on this, they're going on these travels and it happens right at the, uh, the very beginnings of World War II that they don't see coming. So um, as, as many people are fleeing Europe before the start of the war. So we don't actually get into the war, but it's sort of that buildup in the beginning of it. Um, so a lot of high stakes, uh, but also a lot of, of, of fun between the sisters as they're squabbling and pranking each other and trying to figure things out. There is a love interest in the story as well. So, And um, obviously, you know, these two sisters are, are going on a, an adventure and traveling around Europe. So guess where we're going to be going? <laughs> <laughs> so part of the plotting at the moment has been, well, where are they going to go? Should we take them to London? No, maybe we should take them to Ireland first because Heather's desperate I'm for like, any I'm excuse coming back. to come to Ireland. <laughs> And then I was saying, maybe they should go to Venice. And we're like, yes, we definitely need so. <laughs> I think there can be, we'll come back when it's published in 2021. We'll, we'll tell you where we managed to get ourselves to in, in the <laughs> arduous task of researching our novels. It's tough, I tell you. All right. So if there's no more questions, just could you uh, join me in one more round of applause for our speakers today? <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings.